about, about, about two years ago. Is that when we went to that wedding in Alabama? Something like that. Cindy and I went down to, to do a, perform a wedding ceremony down in Alabama, kind of between Mobile, Alabama, and uh, Pensacola, Florida, kind of right down there on the coast. And it was a young gal. She was uh, one of our interpreters on our trips to, mission trips to Columbia, who moved to the United States and was getting married to this young guy. And the house that they did the wedding at belonged to a lady in ministry who travels the world, actually, in ministry. Uh, her name is Dr. Sandy Davis Kirk, Dr. Kirk. And uh, we had the privilege of visiting with her, meeting with her, her, her property. They built a chapel. They have a small dormitory. She hosts uh, ministry teams that come in, actually come in for training. She does all kinds of things. But her heart is really about the revelation of the Lamb of God. And she had written, she's written a number of books, but the book that she gave me and that I've read more than once now is Undone by the Revelation of the Lamb. Undone by the Revelation of the Lamb. The message title this morning is The Cup of God's Wrath. The Revelation of the Lamb of God. I believe if we can really understand it, God will give us revelation of what it is he really, really, really did for us in a way that we may have never understood it before. And what it took for Jesus to do what he did. Actually, what it took for the father to have his son go through what he went through. I believe as we embrace that and understand it, it will change our lives in a big way. There's a scripture that I'm just going to read to start out with. It's not, I don't believe, on the screen. But it's taking place because what we're going to do here a little bit is we're going to go from that Last Supper, Passover meal, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we're going to jump back and forth a couple times to before the creation of the world. And this scripture is in the garden when they have come to arrest Jesus. And Peter, good old Peter, pulled out his little sword and cut off a guy's ear. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, Peter put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, you help me to articulate what it is you put in my heart. And pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding and revelation. And I pray, the Lord, that anything that I might say that is of my flesh, that is not of you, would follow the ground and be harmless. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of us, I'd say most of us, and I'd say probably all of us, have seen human suffering all around us in many, many different ways, many, many different places. We may have gone through it ourselves. We may have watched family members go through it. Otherwise, we've watched the news. We've seen the tragedies of war and famine. We have seen human suffering everywhere you can imagine. And one of the questions that I often hear is this, why does God allow suffering? And sometimes it's even stated a little bit more strongly, it would be like this, if there is a God, how could he allow this kind of suffering? And I want to offer to us this morning, and I'll admit up front, there are times when I see things, my mind goes down that path. 
I don't know that it's possible not to at times. But I want to offer to you what I believe to be a much better question than that question. I believe it's not just a better question, it's a more biblical question. It's a question that Christians, people who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, should ask instead and be reminded of continually. And that question is this, not how can God allow that kind of suffering, but this, what has God done about human suffering? What has he done about human suffering? I'm going to share a few thoughts that come from Dr. Sandy's book, Undone by the Revelation of a Lamb. These are paraphrased, so they're not quotes, but uh, I like the way she looked at this. And I believe it's totally true. That before creation had ever occurred, before the planets were put in place, before the stars were hung in the sky, before the earth and all its beauty was created, before... God had breathed life into Adam. God knew what sin was going to do to the human race and to all of his creation. He wasn't surprised. I believe that he knew and he could see the horrors of genocide by such people as Stalin and Lenin, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin in Uganda years ago. I believe that he knew that there was going to be some maniac called Hitler who had this demonic plan that he called the final solution to destroy the Jews in Germany. None of that, I believe, would have ever caught him by surprise. He knew all this, and yet he created man anyway. I believe that God saw before the creation of the earth the pain that's caused by divorce, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, rape, murder, and a litany of other sins. The damage that would be done by wars created by man, their pride, their selfishness, their, their egos. I believe he saw all that pain and he saw all that suffering before he even breathed life into the first man, Adam. And he created man anyway. I believe that God saw before he created anything what the fall of man would do to his creation. I believe he had created this perfect earth, this perfect garden, perfect Adam, perfect Eve. They were to live forever. The earth was to be perfection forever until man fell into sin. I believe he understood and knew that his creation was going to change. He knew that disease was going to become common. He knew that there was going to be all kinds of death and volcanoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis and floods and famines, all of these things. He knew that all creation was going to groan because of sin. He was not surprised by any of this, but he created man anyway. The stunning answer to the question, what has God done for human suffering is simply this. He asked Jesus to become the sacrificial lamb. And that sounds so simple. And we've heard it so often. 
It's lost its impact on many of us. We hear about the cross. We hear about the blood of Jesus. We watch the movie on TV. We celebrate Easter and Good Friday. But the impact of what it really is all about has become so commonplace that it doesn't impact us anymore. And it should. And I believe as we understand it, it will. But it's not going to impact everybody. God knew that. You know, there's a couple of scriptures, both in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm reading from the Amplified Version. It says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness, absurd and illogical to those who are perishing and spiritually dead because they reject it. But to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. Is it the manifestation of the power of God in our lives as believers? Do we see it that way? Or are we intimidated by those who would call it foolishness and reject it and therefore reject you and reject me? The answer itself defies logic. And oh, we are into logic and intellectualism. In 1 Corinthians 1.27 it says, But God has selected for his purpose the foolishness the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise, revealing their ignorance. And God has selected for his purpose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, revealing their frailty. But even though that's how people receive it, that's how people reject it, that's how illogical it seems, it's still the truth if you believe the word of God. If we are Christians, we have nothing else to stand on but the Word of God. If we believe it's truth, as Christians who deny that it's the Word of God, I would question what they are basing their faith upon because there is no other source, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, to give us revelation and understanding. God's answer to all human suffering is infinite. It's forever. I want to take us back now to Jerusalem. We're leaving eternity past. We're coming back to Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples have finished the Passover meal. He's spent a lot of time teaching them, fellowshipping with them. He has been betrayed. Judas has now left the group. There's only 11 of them. And the meal is finished and they finally are getting up from the table and Jesus is leading them out of the city gate. You can join the group if you'd like in your mind. They come to the brook Kidron and they cross the brook Kidron, which this time of year is running almost red from all of the blood, from all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices at the temple on Passover. And they cross the brook Kidron and they going up the Mount of Olives to a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. I think there's so much imagery just in what I've said so far. The blood flowing from, the, from all of the sacrifices in the river Brook Kidron. Going into the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means crushed olives where the pressure crushes the olives and forces the oil out of the olive. This is where Jesus is leading his disciples. And then he takes three of the disciples, the three that are kind of the 
closer of the, of the 12, which are now the 11. He takes Peter and James and John with him, and he, he's taking them to go in a little bit further than the rest and to pray. And Jesus says these words to him. Words I don't think they have ever heard before spoken by Jesus. He tells them that he is distressed and that he's troubled. And he words it like this in Matthew 26, 38. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who they have seen do all kinds of miracles, healings, demons cast out of people's lives, dead people raised, whose teaching has been profound and impacted many, many people. And now they're hearing him talk about his soul is so grieved to the point of death. And as they lay there on the cool ground, fighting off sleep from the meal they've just had, they hear something. And what they hear is Jesus praying. And he's praying fervently. He's crying out. The words that are used are so powerful and impactful that we get familiar with them and they lose their impact on us. But it says Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. In other words, Father, Father. He is prostrate when we look at the other scriptures and the other gospels. He's fallen to the ground and he's crying out, Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will but your will be done. The disciples had never heard anything like this before. Never. Their leader, their Messiah, in agony, crying out to the Father. And then if you could see Jesus, what you would have seen, you would have seen his sweating at drops of blood, clots of blood, if you would. The word in the Greek is thrombos, which means clots. It's like where the blood comes through the surface of your skin and coagulates and falls to the ground in clumps. Imagine the, the pressure, the stress, the agony that is in is causing capillaries under his skin to burst and that's being forced through his skin. He's being crushed by this stress. And he's in the garden. So that's all that's happened so far. He's not been beaten. He's not been whipped. He's not had nails driven into his hands and feet. He's not had a spear stuck in his side. He's in the garden praying, and yet he is feeling that kind of torment. What could cause this kind of trauma in the Son of God? Well, leaving that scene for a moment, I want to go back before the beginning before creation. When the Father and the Son, picture this and I will give you scriptures, but picture this. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been together from eternity past and it's like they're having a meeting. They're getting together and there's this divine transaction that is taking place between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's this transaction that's called the eternal covenant Before we were ever created, there was an eternal covenant. We sometimes see it called in the Scripture the covenant of redemption or the redemptive covenant in theologians as they speak about about this. 
And in this covenant, God discloses to Jesus the suffering that he is going to have to endure as the Lamb of God to secure his bride. John chapter 18, verse 4, and I throw this in just to reinforce that Jesus knew. Jesus said, so Jesus, knowing all of the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said, whom do you seek? In speaking to those that came to arrest him. Knowing full well all that was to come, Whom do you seek? In Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about the great shepherd of the sheep has ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. An eternal covenant before creation. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 9 It talks about the wisdom we speak of as the mystery of God. His plans were previously hidden even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. 1 Peter 18, knowing that you were redeemed with perishable, not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I believe for us to understand all of the significance of what took place in the garden and on the cross, we need to understand that Jesus was not surprised by any of this. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had agreed to this plan beforehand. Jesus had to know what was coming. He couldn't be surprised by it. He couldn't be shocked by it. Or he would not be going into it with his eyes wide open. And it was clearly from eternity past. Pastor and writer Jonathan Edwards in one of his sermons wrote these words, Some things were done before the world was created. Yes, from eternity The persons of the Trinity were, as it were, confederated in a design and a covenant of redemption. In this covenant, the Father had appointed the Son, and the Son had undertaken the work, and all things to be accomplished were stipulated and agreed. Jesus knew what was coming. Let's return to the garden. The scriptures that I've alluded to will be on the screen I'm not going to read all of them, but we see in Matthew 26, he's crying out, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. To the point of death. In Luke 22, And being in agony, he was praying fervently as sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Mark 14, 34 through 36, My soul is overwhelmed, overwhelmed, with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to the disciples, these three, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might be passing from him. And he cried out, Abba, Father. 
Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. What was the cup that the Father was asking, or that Jesus was asking the Father to remove? I preached a lot of this message about a year ago. I told Cindy last night, I said, I think I'm going to preach this message as long as I'm alive and you'll let me preach during the Easter season. It changed the way I think about Easter. Changed the way I think about the Son. Changed the way I think about the Father. It should just wreck our hearts when we understand what took place. When many people read that scripture about take this cup from me, what they usually think about, and I confess this is what I thought for many, many years, that it was the suffering in a very general sense that Jesus knew was coming as he was going to be arrested, as he was going to be mocked and he was going to be spit upon, as he was going to be beaten by their fists, that they were going to put a crown of thorns and force it on his head, causing blood to run down his face that he was going to be tied to a stake and whipped with a cat of nine tiles with bones of lambs ripping his flesh apart and then being taken to a cross, nailed hands and feet to this cross, eventually a spear stuck in his side. I don't believe it was any of that. I don't believe it was any of that. As bad as that was, if that's what it was, and that's all it was, oh my goodness, if that's all it was, It should cause us to love Jesus with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and all our strength. But i got to tell you this. There have been hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. They have been crucified on crosses. They have been beheaded. They have been been burned at the stake. And they held on to their faith. We can read stories about smiles and a glow on them as the, the fire is being lit on these martyrs as the, as the wood and the flames come up and consume them. Did they have more faith than Jesus? Did they have more confidence in the Father than Jesus the Son? I don't think so. I think it was something else. And I think that Jesus' prayer gives us insight into what it is. And as we look through Scripture, I think we get great insight into exactly what it was in the cup. Father, will you take this cup from me? In the Old Testament, over and over again, we see reference to the cup, the Father's cup. It's used metaphorically over and over and over again as a cup filled with the wine of the Father's wrath. It is used metaphorically over and over and over again as the judgment of God. In every case, it was judgment against those who had treated God's people badly. It's used the cup of his wrath on his own people when they've sinned against him and rejected him. He brings it up that they've experienced the cup of his wrath as restoring Jerusalem, restoring them back to their their homeland. I would offer this to you. Never in any of those situations, even though it was metaphorically in reference to judgment, it was never, ever, ever, ever the fullness of God's wrath. 
They could not have withstood it if it would have been the fullness of his wrath of judgment. But I would offer this. When the cup that Jesus is looking into while he's in the garden contained the fullness of God's wrath on all mankind for all sin, past, present, and future. In Psalm 75, it says, The Lord holds a cup in his hand, and he pours out the wine in judgment. In Ezekiel 23:33, it says, The cup of horror and the cup of desolation. Jeremiah 25:15, The cup was filled with the wine of my wrath. Isaiah 51, 17 and 22, The cup that made you stagger for the cup, the goblet of my wrath. And in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The father wasn't the one beating him or whipping him or putting the crown of thorns on his head. That was man. That was human beings who were rejecting Christ. The father didn't put the nails in his hands and feet. That was man. What is it talking about when he was smitten by God? The wrath of God poured out of the cup onto Jesus. And he drank it all. The scripture says he emptied it. He drank it all to the dregs. I love that word. He drank it all. He took it all. Knowing what was coming, I believe when he was in the garden, when he was praying, when he was crying out to the Father, he was crying out because he was getting revealed to him again what had been agreed to before creation. It's going to cost you to buy your bride if you agree to be the lamb that was slain. And I believe that night in the garden when he was praying, The Father was reminding him, allowing him, as if it were, to metaphorically look into that cup, the cup of wrath. The fullness of the wrath of God that is deserved for every single sinner that rejects Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's a picture of what's going to come for those who reject Christ. If we don't have a clear enough picture from those verses I just read in the Old Testament, let's try Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11. Given by an angel in heaven, and it says this about all who will reject God. Believe me, people will reject God. They are. Not everyone's going to heaven. I don't care how good they argue and how loud they get when they try to tell you about universalism. It's a lie from the pit of hell. There will be those who reject Christ. And here's what it says in Revelation. They will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day and night. And Revelation 16, 19 says, The cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. This is the cup that Jesus drank for all who accept him. Actually, he drank it for all humankind, everybody that's ever been born on this earth. 
but it will only be received by those who receive Christ. So the choice is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Accept the Scripture in its totality, not just pick and choose as we feel led by our flesh. The church doesn't talk about the wrath of God much. We would much rather talk about reconciliation, the love of Christ, the love of the Father, that we are His children. And all of that is true. But all of that is true and demonstrated because of what we understand about the wrath of God. Knowing all that Jesus knew, looking into that cup, knowing what He was going to suffer, when they nailed him to that cross, the physical abuse he'd taken was amazing. It's amazing he lived through it, but he had to. Because what was coming next was worse. The fullness of the wrath of God was being poured out upon him. The fullness of the wrath of God towards our sin was being poured on him. Wave after wave after wave of God's wrath poured out on him until Jesus said, It is finished. The price for our sin has been paid in full. God's wrath has been poured out. When Jesus looked into the cup, he saw something else. And I'm stealing this from Dr. Sandy's book because she's much better at putting words together than me. She said when Jesus looked into that cup, that's not all he saw when he looked into the cup. He saw what the Father saw when he looked into the cup. He saw you and me, his bride. He looked into the cup and saw us. He saw the condition that we were in. He saw the suffering of humanity. And he knew there was only one solution. And there was only one emotion that could overcome the fear and the agony and the horror of the cup. And that's love. He looked into that cup and he saw us and his love for us caused him to drink the cup. He drank the cup for us. Hebrews 13:20 says, "Now the God of peace who brought us up from the dead, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, the covenant of redemption." Before he created anything, there was a covenant put in place between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to redeem man. And the Father was saying, Son, will you be the Lamb of God? This covenant of redemption is what theologians refer to as propitiation. Propitiation. Propitiation is a powerful and important thing understand. Propitiation means a sacrifice to avert wrath. We sometimes soften it to make it more appealing to our flesh. And we think of propitiation as just the act of Jesus taking our place to reconcile us to God. And it's true. But that's only part one of a two-part act. 
The word propitiation, the propitiation for us. One, the wrath of God had to be satisfied that we could be reconciled to Christ. The wrath of God was poured out for all mankind. All mankind. Reconciliation comes to those who receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Both parts. John Piper wrote this. He said, God sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for us. As our substitute, Jesus does not just cancel wrath. He absorbs it and diverts it from us to himself. What an amazing act of love. What an amazing act of love. But there's one thing I do need to touch on. Because some will say something like this. How could a father do this to their son? What kind of cold-hearted father would do this to their son? Today we would call him a child abuser. Is this what took place? Was Jesus being abused by the Father? Is the Father really this emotionless, heartless being which would fit the teaching that He's just out there somewhere and we're on our own? He doesn't really care. He just watches. It's just so far from the truth. He's not a heartless Father. It was not child abuse. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been in communion from eternity past. And they will be to eternity future. There is no one that loves Jesus as much as the Father. No one. Ever. As a matter of fact, there was no one. Just try to put yourself in the position of God the Father in the natural Try as a mom or a dad to put yourself in a position where you've got to watch your child endure the most horrible, horrible pain and suffering ever. What could cause you to allow that to happen? My mind can't even imagine what would cause me to allow that to happen. God the Father loves us so much that he offered up his only son. We hear those words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And we've heard it so many times. But God so loved us that he allowed in his plan, in his covenant, for the son to take on the wrath of, the fullness of the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. Quoting John Piper again, it says, In that very moment, when God's curse rested most heavily on Jesus because of sin, the Father's love for His Son reached explosive proportions. And John Stott wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ, in giving His Son, He was giving himself. Through through the person of his son, 
he himself bore the penalty which he himself inflicted. There is neither harsh injustice nor unprincipled love nor Christological heresy in that. There is only unfathomable mercy. And I love the last part of this phrase. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. The Father's cup, the wrath of God, poured out on the sinless, spotless sacrifice. The covenant that was established and agreed to by all the parties that Jesus was reminded of and got got to see in the garden that caused that kind of pain, agony, and suffering that his, his soul was near unto death. And he was pleading with the Father, if there is another way, but nevertheless, your will, not mine. And he took it for us. You know, sometimes as Christians, we neglect the fullness of the cross for what we call the deeper things. Let me just remind us, there is no deeper thing than the cross. There is nothing deeper than the cross. We can spend our time on all these rabbit trails and of things in, in our Christian life and our Christian walk, and I'm not saying they're bad. As long as they're based on Scripture, they're good. But the deepest thing is the cross. There's nothing deeper. The redemption, covenant, nothing deeper. The price that was paid by the Son and the Father, there's nothing deeper. And the revelation is there for us to read and understand, and we have the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us. We don't have to be like those who reject it. We don't have to be like those who say it doesn't make sense and it's illogical. We are those that have the teacher who will bring revelation of everything I've said. And I I hope, I hope you study. I hope you check this out. Don't trust me. Trust the Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit reveal it to you. I believe that he will wreck your heart like he's wrecked mine. Because once you begin to understand the depth, the depth of what he did for us, it can't not change you unless you don't belong to him. And propitiation, a sacrifice that takes the wrath that we can be reconciled to God. So I hope, not that it changes our compassion towards people, our desires to reach out and minister to people who are suffering, because we should. We're commanded to in the Scriptures. Jesus would and he did. We need to do all those things. But when that thought comes to your mind and the question arises, how can God allow this human suffering? I hope you're reminded to ask yourself the other question. What has God done? about human suffering. The cross. It's eternal. We are not walking in the fullness of our salvation yet. Don't kid yourselves. We will still suffer as Christians. Matter of fact, it's guaranteed. If Christ suffered and was persecuted, you and I will be. But he has taken care of it in eternity. There will come a time 
when the fullness of our salvation will be manifested. There will be no more sickness, no disease. There will be no tsunamis. There will be no tornadoes or earthquakes. There will be no shame, no guilt, no condemnation. There will be no sadness. There will be no tears. There will be a new heaven and a new earth because all of creation is groaning under the impact of sin. And it's guaranteed because of what Christ did for us, the way that he answered the question, what has God done about human suffering? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you sounds so shallow when I think about what you've done for us. But thank you so much for your grace, your love, your mercy, for sending Jesus, your son. Jesus, thank you so much for going to the cross, absorbing the wrath that belonged to all who sinned, which is all of us. Lord, and I pray that in your mercy and your grace, you would just continue to draw people to the truth, woo them by your Holy Spirit. God, that none would perish. That none would perish. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts of evangelists to share the gospel, to share the good news, to share our testimonies, to share what Jesus has done for us and how it can transform, it will transform our lives. I thank you, Lord, that we have a Savior and a friend who walks through the valleys of the shadow of death, who promised never to abandon us, never forsake us, never leave us. No matter what we're going through, no matter how intense the suffering it is, in your eyes it is truly but a moment in eternity. Give us your eyes, your understanding. I pray that in this Easter season, when people are talking about Jesus, they're talking about the cross, that we would take advantage of every opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. Let the truth of what was accomplished through Christ on the cross just deeply get seated in us and rooted in us. And let us share it with others. I also pray now, Lord, that as we go our separate ways today and in the next week to spend time with family and friends, that you would go before us, you would watch over us, protect us. There will be so many people traveling. God, keep them safe as they travel to and from. We thank you, Lord, for family, friends, fellowship, brothers and sisters in Christ. May it all be done for your glory in your son's name. Amen.